0: Hello, hello. It is the 17th of March, and if I could do any sort of proper Irish accent, I would. Happy St. Patrick's Day to everyone um, to whom that matters. Uh, And this, I can promise you, the grass is going to get green and there will be clover in it because uh, that's how it happens. Um, All right. So I have one very serious uh, headline to share with you before we bring on the ordinarily far less serious, Dr. Peter Kapsner. If you um, listen regularly to this program, then you know that Thursday morning is our opportunity to catch up with Peter and that I save headlines for him all week um, because I can't just go with anybody where we can go with Dr. Peter Capsner. And so... Um, just you know prepare yourself, and if you don 't listen to the program regularly, and so you don 't yet know peter kapsner you 're just doing it wrong okay so um here is the super serious headline at the lead off of the hour um the united states d h uh, s deputy secretary so i don 't know all their names because right there 's just a lot of people out there now with big jobs and different names than you know the guys doing the jobs just a few years ago, so just know this: an official with the uh, With the U.S. government in the Biden administration um, is reporting that intelligence officials are warning about a potentially gigantic, that's the word, influx of migrants at the U.S. southern border this spring. Possibly 170,000 people are prepared to cross um, if COVID policies are lifted. And so you and I have been thinking, oh, we can't wait. We can't wait for the COVID, all the COVID things to be lifted. When that happens... Um the the folks who want to come across the US southern border um have a different set of rules. So during um COVID restrictions US border officials have turned away more than a million people um just based on COVID rules. And so when those policies end um all those folks are going to head to the border, and the reason for which they were turned around the last time will no longer exist. That barrier to entry will not exist. The, oh, no, there's a COVID rule preventing you from entering, um, that particular rule or that set of rules would be gone. So... um there is now a Southwest Border Coordination Center, the SBCC, that has been spun up by the Biden administration. It is a newly created or maybe previously unreported um, uh, planning group. Um, they are working on the Southwest Border Mass Mass Irregular Migration Contingency Plan. Yes, uh, that's a DHS-branded thing now, the Southwest Border Mass Irregular migration contingency plan uh, run now uh, headquartered at the old St. Elizabeth Hospital in D.C. Um, It's a big facility that's now been converted solely over to this use by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, So the plan is massive and major and significant, and a border surge is expected this spring. And I, I, you know, it's not a lot of people talking about it because we got other things that we're focused on. All right. Uh, spring training does start today in Major League Baseball. Thought you'd want to know that. Some employees at Disney World, because they don't have anything better to do, are staging a walkout. Um, so if you were planning to go to Disney World for spring break, check the dates because they're posted of the walkout. Now, here's a better reason to walk out. Um, one of the stars of Moscow's ballet, Olga Smirnova, she quit the Russian ballet, over the invasion of Ukraine, and she will now be dancing instead for the Dutch National Ballet in Amsterdam. So get your ballet tickets in Amsterdam. Um, Why did she do this? Her grandfather is Ukrainian, and she uh, wrote um, on social media that she is against war with all the fibers of her soul. And she goes on to talk about um, why she walked out of her job, um, or maybe, I don't know, if you're a ballerina, I don't know, you probably do something far more graceful and dramatic than walk out of your job. But anyway, there are people taking a stand, and I want to um, celebrate them as they they do so. My first question to Dr. Peter Kapsner is going to be whether or not he accepts my declaration as a a transtemporalist, whether or not he's a Greenwich meanie, having just arrived back over the pond from, uh, from Europe. Is he also transtemporal or just have jet lag yeah that's that's what we're gonna spring on Dr Peter Kapsner first here on mornings with Carmen But it's possible that Dr. Peter Kapsner left the country um, while the Senate was approving daylight savings time being made permanent in order to avoid a conversation about his transtemporal temporal nature. <laughs> um, but, Peter, while you were away, the U.S. Senate um, passed a bill that would um, make daylight savings times permanent, which would have a dramatic uh, effect and impact on our program because some of our radio towers don't go to full power um, until a particular time related to time yes hmm. sunrise so it actually matters Um, Time matters to us here uh, in the radio network. Um, One other thing happened while you were um, over on the other side of the pond, and I wanted to see if possibly you were responsible for this as well. The Eiffel Tower is now 20 feet taller. (laughs) Were you actually in France?
1: Well, I could probably neither confirm nor deny. And and we don't. uh, We also want to be a little careful because, you know, Faith Radio has been on quite the expansion over the last five years with new transmitters all over the country. And let's just say that extra 20 feet on top of the Eiffel Tower that is a radio antenna. I mean, Uh you know, I'm just... Uh We might want to put the pieces together. We might want to put the pieces together, yeah. (laughs)
0: Did you pack... Did you pack... Uh, something before you left, and while you were there, snuck over there and installed a faith radio signal on the top of the Eiffel Tower. I I mean, is that is it possible? Can you either confirm or deny that that happened?
1: Well, I can just I can say this that the Eiffel Tower is unique among architectural structures that does allow you to climb up the slide uh, side of it because there's a lot of iron put together for some handholds and footholds. So that's as far <laughs> as I can go with this, Carmen. I probably shouldn't say more.
0: You're so spidey. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, let's talk dogs. Um, while you were away, we learned. Um, from the American Kennel, who is it? The AC? Who are they? The American Kennel Association? No. The I'm going to have to pull up the article. There's
1: something here. akin to that. I can't remember the exact name too. There's a
0: kennel involved, which right, dogs sure, don't like at all. Right. Um, oh, the American Kennel Club. It's a club. Um, they um, they have let us know that like for 31 years running. Um, Thirty-one years, unprecedented. Thirty-one years, the Labrador Retriever, number one among dogs, number one. Like I just feel like the Labrador Retriever could just have an "I'm number one" tag now. Clearly,
1: right? clearly,
0: yeah. The um, hairless Zolo is comes in number one nineteen, and part of that is because you can't even say its name.
1: Yeah, I think it's underrated. And it and it and the name and it is an issue, but the hair. dog is underrated. Exactly. It doesn't
0: have any hair. Oh, okay. So um, dogs, do you have a dog? Do you like dogs? How do you feel about the dachshund coming in at number 10?
1: yeah mm-hmm. this is a this is a good question Carmen and and I know too that we'll talk a little bit about dogs being a man's best friend as that moniker associated with but dogs in general and and at the risk of alienating probably ninety nine point nine percent of our faith radio listening base because I've been in studio with you where we've asked for dog photos mm-hmm. coming in mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. the the line lights up like no other question they start sending in dogs you start speaking in dog and puppy talk and and mm-hmm. the place just explodes right so I'm gonna say this i I'm maybe I'm a little bit more than a dog agnostic. I really enjoy dogs. I I think I would consider myself this. I'm a dog grandparent in the sense that I love to play with dogs all day, but I love to give them back at the end of the day. Um, Dogs are a ton of work. So just like a grandparent that loves to take care of the grandkids all day long and spoil them and have fun with them and then give them back at the end of the day, I think that's where I fall on the dog category. I genuinely love them. Everybody in Great Britain seems to have a dog. They're all over all of the parks. We walk through... Hyde Park a couple weeks ago uh, right in front of Buckingham Palace, and everybody had their dogs out. They're amazing, but man, they are a lot of work, and I've got five kids uh, at home, and so uh, I think we just don't have the bandwidth for the dogs, but boy, I sure do love them.
0: All right, so there are uh, two dogs in, um, in, the, in the Radio Shack She Shed, um, and just so you know, there's been a little bit of an internal conflict, and um Sassy, both of my dogs are canardlies. You can hardly tell what their mom and dad were. Um but Sassy who is now nearly 12 has been unceremoniously displaced. Um young uh, the young pup known as Millie um has usurped the throne of what we call the princess pillow in the, the pictures, she shed. Yes. And it's just just dis- just dis- devastating. All right, the old dog now just flat on the floor. All right. No princess pillow in sight. That's the dog news here on uh, on this Thursday on the Faith Radio Network. I know this is exactly why you tune in. Um, we are going to ask Dr. Peter Kapsner next, if he were ever going to make it into the Guinness Book of World Records, what would it be for <laughs> in the context of a conversation about the world's largest potato? Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: When Irish are smiling,
0: Dr. Peter Kapsner, who will now henceforth be introduced as a dog agnostic <laughs> and potentially trans-temporal Greenwich meanie. Uh, all right. Um, what is going on with the person who thought they had the world's largest potato and then maybe didn't?
1: Yeah, that was a great story. Did you see the picture of that potato? That, I mean, I,
0: this, I know
1: I love yeah. it when potatoes are misshapen. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not a round Mr. Potato Head kind of potato person. So this was a gigantic, <sighs> How they could even lift the this misshapen potato was stunning to me. And I think they it was a, a New Zealand, right? And they thought they had the world record, only to find yeah. out otherwise.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just feel like you dig up a potato of this size, you are thinking to yourself, "We have done it. <laughs> For we sure, have done yeah. it." Like right, we yes. right. So they thought they had dug up the world's largest potato in the garden of their small farm near Hamilton. Yeah, this is in New Zealand, um, and then they had their dreams turn to mash after <laughs> Guinness wrote to say that scientific scientific testing found it wasn't in fact a potato after all. Dun dun dun.
1: <laughs> but the thing who is who
0: even knew that they were DNA testing the stuff that people are sending in
1: yeah and the reality is is I'm sure that you could mash that up and fill up five Thanksgiving day tables and nobody would know the <laughs> difference I mean there's you no could, chance you just need a lot of butter and a lot of cream a bit of garlic and I'll tell you what you, you could serve a lot of people with that potato I'm sticking with a potato I don't think it's a different kind of vegetable
0: it's a tuber uh as it says it's a tuber of a type of gourd. I don't even know what that means. I don't either. But there either. you go. That's what's going on. If you were going to um, be in the Guinness Book of World Records, what might it be for?
1: Yeah, that, I, was, I was thinking about that question this morning a bit. And, and I think digging up some kind of produce would be a pretty good reason to be in the Guinness <laughs> Book of World Records. But I have to say, I've got enough of diva in me that I would really want to go big. I, something mm. about maybe living on Mars for a year. I know Matt Damon already did that. So I might not get the world record for that that part of it. Um, or, or exploring the, the Mariana Trench something along those lines where you're the first... To really be an explorer. If I had another life to live, I would love to get shot into outer space and uh, and just live on a planet. Uh, ever since C.S. Lewis's um, Pollyandra series, if, if people have not read that series, it's a really underrated series that C.S. Lewis wrote about the same time as the Narnia books. And his the, the theological puzzlings that he is able to represent in the midst of a space story, it's maybe the best space trilogy I've ever written. And I think even since that time... Written?
0: Yeah. That you've ever written? No, that I, he has
1: ever written. I don't read know me I don't write anything you, said, you can't find you me on social that, media you right. said that I've ever written I don't know I would, I'm just calling you i was just being prophetic and Paul Perot has been mm-hmm. telling me I have to write some books and so I'm just being a bit prophetic on that on that account but read it the C.S. Lewis trilogy is so good and, and since that time I've always wanted to go to outer space it's it's phenomenal
0: I have thoughts I won't share them so um Anna Sorokin I know this is not in your notes, but I just came across this. I actually, so there's this Netflix series called Inventing Anna. I thought it was just a story. Apparently, it's based on a true story of Anna Sorokin, who is um, a convicted swindler. She claimed to be a German heiress. Um, Anyway, um, first of all, I didn't know it was a true story or based on a true story. And so now I have to do more research. But it gives me the opportunity to talk about um, the inheritance we have in in Christ and what is preserved for us and awaiting us in heaven um, because people do want to imagine that they are heirs mm. heir right yeah. and so this woman has like apparently fabricated a whole fake identity as an heiress um and i can we can say to christians your your inheritance is not fake you're a real heiress of the kingdom of heaven
1: Carmen, that actually is really timely for me just from some personal events in my life, having just been overseas. My daughter's studying over there and she has a friend that uh, we met with over coffee who I think is about 24 years old. And uh, and she just got into her doctorate program at the University of Edinburgh to study revelation and about the events that which are to come. So that Mm -hmm. the inheritance that we have awaiting for us. And it was one of the more fascinating hours of conversations that I've had with someone. She she leads worship in a very vibrant church in downtown Edinburgh. And we went to the service and it was a brilliant service. And I went to coffee with her the next day. And, And you and I talk often about how faith is being experienced in the next generation. I'll say this, it was entirely different to hear how she talked about kingdom life. She was tattooed from head to toe. Um, let's just say that her language was a bit like a sailor. Uh, and that was really sort of, I, I couldn't figure out what to do with all of that. And yet it was clear in that time that she loves Jesus down to her toes. And here's what she said, and this is what she said about um, being a person of inheritance. She cracked open for about 45 minutes uh, telling me about her background. And unfortunately, this is the second time in the last month that a young woman who is uh, intimately involved in, I think, reliable ministry, I've been able to be a part of a conversation where they cracked open. And the themes of their stories really are about the mental health that I know you talk about here on The Morning Show often, uh, as we should. And, uh, and ta- she talked about two suicide attempts that she had. She talked about being mm-hmm. in drugs for a number of years. She talked about what it was like to grow up alone and in a difficult family. And here's what she said at the end of it. Carmen, about the inheritance. Um, she said, first of all, that as part of the reconstruction of the church of the future, the church needs to lament the fact that we cannot find our hope fully in this world. And the fact that a 24-year-old young woman understood that, that she said, our journey has to start with sorrows. It can't be the God of the vending machine where we assume that God is here to give us a happy life uh, on earth, and that's the blessed life. So that was the first thing that she said. But then she said this, and I wrote it down because it struck me uh, so deeply over coffee. She said that hope uh, is in a person, and hope is the expected outcome of a trustworthy person. Uh, hope is an expected outcome of a trustworthy person. And she said, here's what I know. Uh, I will have all of my tears one day wiped away. And that that will happen after Jesus returns. The hope that we carry, the hope of glory, she said, is that we are waiting for that day in which all of our tears will be wiped away. And we have an inheritance that we, are, we have waiting for us. We get a deposit of that by living hope-filled lives through the Spirit together in this world as we wait for the world to come. It was one of the most encouraging conversations I've had with a young person, probably in the last five to seven years, that she saw a pathway in the midst of the mental health crisis that is running wild through the next generation. She was able to identify and articulate what the pathway out of that is. And it was the hope found in the inheritance that is to come. It was a really quite the conversation.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that yeah like it, that is so that is so encouraging
1: yeah it really it's it, it caused me to rethink I, i've been doing so much reconstructive work with young people here at the university of northwestern st paul where i teach and it's been a, a a really engaging exhilarating process but she gave me some pieces of the puzzle uh and as did this other young woman that i talked to about a month ago who is involved in the headquarters of a pretty significant evangelical church and she's about 24 years old and their stories were so similar In terms of what they've experienced and their hope was also so similar i really began to see some pathways it was really exciting
0: so um we should at some point talk about um what's going on at the university of northwestern st paul in terms of the um, curriculum and offerings related to new bible courses and interpreting scripture and discipleship like this holistic discipleship approach and biblical thinking and living, um, I, let me just say, I know that I should have been paying attention before now, but I just learned about all of it yesterday. Mm,
1: yeah, it's exciting. There's a big revision of the curriculum. I know for me I know. next fall, I'll be teaching. I, know. I went to teaching a webinar. It's great. Yeah, no, we're, I'm really excited by what we're doing here. It, it's legitimate.
0: It's so, it's so exciting and so cool. Okay. So you guys should check that out at UNWSP.edu. That's the University place. of Northwestern St. Paul.edu. UNWSP.edu as you're thinking about where your high school seniors are going to be going next year or maybe you have a kid who's taken a gap year um, or maybe you're thinking you know what it's time for me it is time for me to go and um, and explore the next level and layer of my own um, educational experience and now is the time. Well, I mean we'd love to have you. We UNW win edu. you can um, take classes with Dr. Peter Kapsner where he will um, wax eloquent, not only about the things of Scripture, but... Um yeah, other things as well. Yeah, he and, is my and, other other things as well guy. You,
1: that's exactly right. And you know how pervasive I am on social media. So this is not <laughs> just the only opportunity to <laughs> find my
0: work. <laughs> yeah, you got to go to the university to find him. All yeah, right. exactly. Peter, thank you as always so much. I love you, my it. my friend.
1: Yep, we got to
0: take a break for Break Point with John Stone Street. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. don't have to go uh, very far into your own community, and certainly you don't have to go very far into conversations about higher education or justice or um, equity. You don't have to go very far into any of those conversations before you trip over the reality of racial tension in the United States of America. Um, There are those who think we should be colorblind, but that ignores the history um, of injustice uh, there are those who want us to be anti-racist. We talked about this a little earlier today in relationship to what's going on at Grove City College. Um, but those efforts alienate a lot of people who need to be involved and at the table. And so we need a new model. We need to a new way of communicating with each other. Um, what we are doing now is not working. So Dr. George Yancey joins us next. The book is Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and anti-racism. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Show me your
2: face. Fill up this space. My world needs you right
0: now. George Yancey is a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University. He specializes in race, race, ethnicity, and religion. He has a B.S. in economics, a doctorate in sociology. Uh, He has, over the course of time, studied and commented on everything from interracial romance to multiracial churches, academic bias, um, and he has conducted research on anti-Christian attitudes in the United States. Um, A few years ago, he started working for Baylor University with a joint appointment in sociology and the Institute for Studies of Religion. And he joins us today with a brand new book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Dr. Yancey, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thanks for having me again, Carmen.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about what is not working so that we can understand why we have to change how we communicate with each other um, in, this, in this conversation that happens and doesn't happen related to racial tension in America?
2: Yeah, so if I was to boil down in a sentence or two, what's not working, what's not working is trying to impose our vision on, what, on how we should deal with racism on everyone else. And whether that is to tell most people of color to ignore race, or to impose people through an anti-racism framework that, that people have to believe certain things. That doesn't work. In, in a society as polarized as ours, that simply will not work. Unless we're able to enter into a, a conversation that is a real conversation, not a monologue, a dialogue, where we, where we commit towards listening to one another and finding solutions we can all work with together, then I think we're stuck in this sort of polarized racial society that we have.
0: So part of um, what I really appreciate about this approach is that is the mutuality. Um, and so it's one thing for me to say and acknowledge that absolutely everyone is an image bearer of the living God. It's another thing for me to find an image bearer that is ethnically different from me who is willing to sit down. Um, and and enter into a real relationship that over the course of time, we are going to be able to hear one another, see one another, um, and then arrive at uh, a different place in, in the conversation related to um, race. I mean, is, is that fair?
2: I do think that this is a solution that's going to take time. If I was looking for something that was quick and overnight, this is not it. Because in our society, we've done such a poor job of modeling what it means to have good communication with each other. There's a few examples, but not nearly enough. And so we're going to have to change our outlook, our way of approaching it. And this change is going to happen, have to happen in multiple areas. No one group can dictate this. We have to, as a society, begin to value working together rather than just winning the fight that we're in.
0: Yeah, I have to value the, the person, and I have to value working together. And I think this is really critical. I have to understand my own bias towards self-interest. Um, I, I like this observation that you make that, like, I have a really strong ability to convince myself that what I want is actually best for everyone.
2: Yeah, you know, in the social sciences, we call that confirmation bias. As a Christian, I call that human depravity, because it fools us. But it fools us into thinking, I mean, we can legitimately think what we're doing is the right thing. And it feels right, and yet our own biases seep into that. And so I need someone on the outside calling me out in, in, a, in a way that is appropriate, in a way that I can hear that person. No, have you not seen this? And... Don't you see how this benefits you above others? So we all need
1: that.
0: So how do we get from, because I, I can hear, like, I can actually, like, hear people pushing back already, right? Like, well, what what does Dr. Yancey mean that, you know, right is not right and right doesn't apply to everyone? And if I have discerned what is right, then um, impressing that and imposing that on others is exactly what should happen. Okay, can you sort of help us take a step back from that breathless assertion of we know we're right?
2: Yeah, you know, here, I believe that there is a right. I think that truth is real, truth is objective. Uh, our ability to discover it, though, we have to admit, is shaped by where I am in society. As an African American man, that shape, how I see racial issues, there's just no way around that. If you are a European-American, that shapes how you see racial issues. It's not to say that we all think the same way. But there's no doubt that as I look at my life, I'm honest, there are things that I believe, in part because of my experience as an African-American man. That doesn't make me evil, but it does mean that I can be biased in ways that I don't even perceive myself as being biased. As Christians, we should be the champions of admitting our own failings and beginning to build from there, self-introspection first, before we start accusing others of these mistakes. And so my job is to first start with myself, but then to call everyone towards moving in this direction so that we can have a real conversation where I can be open to the fact that I may not always be right
0: talking with Dr. George Yancey about his new book Beyond Racial division: a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. Um, let's let's start uh, to define and describe the essence of what you call mutual accountability.
2: Sure. So what I argue is that we are all mutually accountable for having the conversation what I call collaborative conversation. This is a goal-oriented conversation where we try to understand where other people are coming from so we can find solutions that we can all live with. What I don't mean, and I don't want people to be confused, I don't think the solutions may always be mutual. In other words, that people of all races have the exact same responsibilities. In fact, given our history, that's probably unlikely to happen all the time. But the responsibility to enter into the conversation in good faith, with an attempt to really try to understand others, that is mutual. Everyone has that responsibility. It doesn't matter what race or where you're from. Everyone has a responsibility to enter into the conversation in, in a good faith manner.
0: Talk about um, good faith, because I think that, you know, that's a phrase we hear, um, and we certainly imagine that we're entering into conversations in good faith. Um, how, do you, how do you define that, and how do I know if a person— uh, who says they're willing to enter into a conversation um, is, is doing so in good faith? Like, is, is there a judgment call that I get to make there?
2: I, I do admit it's a judgment call. There are some people who are not ready right for this conversation and put very clear. Uh, here's a way to, to see whether you are entering into good faith. When you talk to other people, are you practicing what I would call active listening? Are you listening to argue or are you listening to understand? And the way you know this is, can you phrase the way that they are speaking about an issue in a way that they would say, yes, that is how I understand this issue. So that you at least understand where they are coming from, at least understand what their ideas are, even if you agree with them or not. Now, what I have found is that when people really don't want to have this conversation, when they just want to argue, they make no attempt to try to understand where you're coming from. They're, what they do to try to distort what you're saying in ways that don't bear any resemblance to what you're saying. And they're unwilling to take in information and to, and to reconsider their ideas. So when that happens, I know that I'm probably dealing with someone who's not ready in this conversation and, until they're convinced they are. Then I tend to move on to someone who is. And we've got to find those who are. And I think there's plenty of us who rather have this conversation, plenty of us who know that we can't ignore race, nor can we use some of the tactics that we've seen with anti-racism, which I think have driven people off from this conversation.
0: Well, yeah, because I they result in my feeling very defensive. Right um the 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 color, the the colorblindness conversation ignores reality um in terms of the lived experience of people um and and the i mean and, and so that 's a conversation about actually understanding history as it really is versus maybe some of the ways that it has been sanitized or things that we weren't taught intentionally or unintentionally. Um, because people were wanting history to look a certain way. Um, and so I think those conversations are really important. Colorblindness doesn't get us there. Um, and anti-racism makes some of us like immediately defensive. Um, and so thank you for offering uh, a conversation about a third way of, of having having the conversation, but having the conversation differently. We have to change the way uh, that we communicate with each other, says Dr. George Yancey, because what we're doing is not working. We need an approach that not only meets the needs of most individuals, but has a chance of gaining support across racial and political lines. We are talking about the book Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. But I would say it's um, it's more than a book. It's casting a vision for having conversations about race, racism, racialization differently. So we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. George Yancey in just a moment.
1: I know there's gonna be some yes. I swear that love will find you in your
0: We're talking with uh, Professor George Yancey. We're talking across a range of topics, but we're doing so using his brand new book, Beyond Racial Division a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. Um, Dr. Yancey, talk with us about sort of the constellation of uh, of things going on here. I, I have to not only see myself as an image bearer of the living God, but every other person as an image bearer of the living God. That's sort of the theological starting point of this converse- conversation. I have to be proactive um, about engaging in conversation. I have to take personal responsibility as I enter into those conversations. I have to deeply desire to be collaborative, um, to engage in active listening and not just enter in defensively, hoping to, you know, score some points. Um, and I have to do so with uh, with people who are different from me, um, and I have to do so in a spirit of goodwill. That's, um, that's, as I understand it, how you sort of laid out the framework of how these conversations would take place. Could you give us an example of either somewhere that you have experienced this happening or seen this happen so people can kind of understand how they would make it happen where they are?
2: Yeah. You know, I think it happens in my life and in interpersonal relationships when I have good interpersonal relationships. Usually we learn how to listen to one another, uh, you know, in my marriage and, and, and with some of my good friends on an organizational level. I have seen a couple of organizations that are uh, attempting to practice this. I, I don't know how successful they have been. Uh, one is an organization I talked about in the book, uh, and it's, the name is it right now. It, I, I, I live in Los Angeles. Uh, the name is it right now. But they basically are bringing in community members and uh, the police to have a process in this conversation. Uh, I, I heard of is an organization called Better Angels. Mm-hmm. That is doing something similar. So it is happening. It's happening on a small scale. What I hope this book can help to do is sort of kickstart it off to happen on a larger scale. Because I think that we are going to, the the colorblindness and the anti racism models have had such a big head start in how people think about dealing with race that uh, we're going to have, we have a lot of work to do to catch up with them. But I think that we can. You know, it's going to take a while, but we can. And once we can, I think people are going to see this is a better way. This is a way we can really solve our problems. This is how we have to approach it. It's tougher, but it's more sustainable. That's my hope and dream. of this.
0: Yeah. We love better angels. That, that is certainly an organization that um, we have talked with uh, on occasion and, and certainly highlight what they're doing. Um, I, uh I remember a conversation uh, with a, a white pastor from Atlanta and a uh, and a black woman who wrote a book together. I think it's called Black and White. Um, but I th- so I think there are efforts out there. Um, I think people are trying. I think what you are giving us is a framework, um, not only for how we can enter into these conversations, but also like this is a this is a book that. Provides for me like something in my hand to take to someone else and say, I want to try something new. Would you um, read this and let me know whether or not you might be willing to try this with me? And then let's see if we could grow the conversation from there. Um, that would be me being proactive, it would be me intentionally reaching out to a person dif- who I recognize is different from me. A person who I've already um, uh, discerned as a person of goodwill, um, and to just to take the first step and say, you know, here's a framework. Do you think we could build on this?
2: Yeah. I wrote this book because I do want people to be able to use it in order to facilitate the conversation. In fact, if this is a Christian book by University Press, but I run it away it in way where you can give it to a non-Christian because I only put the theology in one chapter. The rest I use reason, logic, uh, other studies to show that this is the better way to go. So I do want people to give this book to a non-Christian and say, look, you know, if you, if you don't like the Christianity part of it, it's only in this one chapter six, and you just skip that chapter. Uh, I, I hope that it becomes a witness because I do think that this is theologically based within our Christian faith. But I want a book that can hopefully jump out of the Christian circles into our society so that as a society, we can have a better shot at making, at developing healthier race relations.
0: Can I ask you a, um, a, a bit of a different question? I mean, I think it's connected, but it's a little bit different. Um, when, when conversations come up as they did last week, um, that the way we are responding as Americans to what is happening in Ukraine um, is fundamentally different than how we have responded when very similar things have happened in other places in the world where the majority population is not ethnically white how do i How do I have that conversation in a way that doesn 't immediately result in almost global defensiveness of my listeners
2: yeah i mean i think that's a great question i i, I know that that question's come up so i think before you have a conversation you want to set some ground So the, the, the conversation is less a debate and more of a discussion of where are we at and why this is happening so but this is not the debate uh per se uh i would I would have the conversation in, let's listen to what people are saying and try to understand their perspective, even if we don't agree with them. So we don't have to agree with this perspective. Let's understand where it's coming from so that we can understand why people think this way. So it'll help us to deal with future problems, future issues, because we understand why people think a certain way. And I would think it would be valuable to have multiple perspectives on this. Treat it the same way. Would agree with it or not? Here's a perspective on this particular question. Ideally, and, and if, you know, we in the audience don't have a lot of say in what's exactly happening with with our government to, to a certain extent. Ideally, we may come to a conclusion. Okay, I may mean, not agree with everything here, but here's some things that have given us an insight. So we're listening for insights, not not nor once again to win the debate. I think if we could frame it that way, we can have a healthier conversation. Unfortunately, the way our media is set up is we tend to frame it as a debate rather than as a conversation for understanding. And for this particular conversation, I think a conversation for understanding would be the way we want to go.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that we can um we can make observations without necessarily um suggesting that we know exactly. Uh, the motivation of of what's happening in a picture, in a storyline, or even in the use of, of words and language that people are using in the context of war to describe events and people. And so some grace, I think, is um, necessary as well in all of this. Um, you are very gracious. And uh, so thank you, Dr. George Yancey, for your time today. Thank you for what you're doing every single day at Baylor University. Um, at the Institute for the Studies of Religion. Thank you for the book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Thank you, um, George, and have a great day.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. We'll be right back. May the road rise up to... Uh, Okay, no. In fact, uh, it is not a faith radio tower on the top of the Eiffel Tower. I I apologize for those of you who thought my jesting might be serious on that particular matter. Um, I mean, we would take one, but that's not what's going on there. Uh, It has been a delight and a joy to gather with you in this time. Thank you so much for including these conversations in your day. I am hoping they will be um, fodder for the conversations you will in turn have with others. So what is something that we've talked about today that you could imagine yourself talking about with someone else? I mean, you know, we covered a lot of topics, Uh, the waterfront of issues, both here and abroad. We're bringing the mind of Christ to bear, and now you get to walk it out into the world that God so loves. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.